Hello and welcome to this special University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson, and this week we're taking a slightly different approach by speaking to Katie Campbell, Professor of the Faculty of Extension at the University of Alberta in Canada. Professor Campbell visited the University of Brighton recently as part of an ongoing research project, interviewing a range of staff members about engaged scholarship and the connection between the university and the local community. When she paid a visit to our radio studio, we discussed all of this and much more besides, including what we should do if we ever find ourselves in the picturesque surroundings of Alberta. Hi Katie, thanks for coming to the studio today. Um, Could you start just by giving us a brief summary of exactly what you're doing here at the University of Brighton and what you hope to achieve? Yes, so um, I'm doing, um, it's a research study um, and I'm looking at engaged scholarship and so I'm talking to um, scholars who would describe themselves as engaged with community and that's the kind of research that they do and I'm, um, I'm interested in their journeys their, you know, how did they become engaged scholars and so on? How has it changed them? I do identity work. And I'm very interested in looking at um, universities around the world and how they support that kind of work. Okay, and by engaged scholars, can you just yes. define what that what that means exactly? Um, in, well, nobody agrees on the definition, but um, engaged um, scholarship or university community engagement and the scholarship of that um, tends to um, think about... Um, co-production of research with communities, for example, um, that and the outcomes are mutually beneficial to the community and to the university um, and reciprocal. So the you know, community gets something out of it, um, the university gets something out of it. And that's different than um, branch research, for example, um, you know, where you're in a lab. Um, and it can it's it's different than what in Canada we call drive by research where the researcher um, has an idea it's the researcher's own idea um, and they go out and find a site to get data from Mm. bring the data back to the university and you know the the members participants in the site may never hear about it again Mm. the results don't necessarily tend to um, have any or immediate um, implications for quality of life Okay, we'll get a bit more into the nitty gritty of that uh, a bit, a little bit later. But and um, why, why the University of Brighton then? Is that one of a number of institutions you're focusing on, or it is? But um, first of all, I love the University of Brighton, and um, this is about my sixth time being here. I'm kind of a a, a cup groupie. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a, a conference that I come to every year. It's not at the University of Brighton, but um, I always then. Um, try to get some time with David Wolf and, and Co. Okay. Um, at Cup and talk to them. They're quite well known um, in Canada, very well known in Canada, right. um, for being the University of Brighton as a whole for being a very um, civically engaged okay. university. And how has that reputation kind of spread? Then do you think why why do people in Canada know about the University of Brighton? Well, um, <clears throat> so this, um, my colleagues in Canada that would know would be engaged scholars usually, mm-hmm. um, who do the kind of work um, that's very well supported at the University of Brighton. Um, or they uh, they have a research partnership with a faculty member here. Okay. And, um, you know, like attracts like, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And can you trace the roots of your of your interest in this research subject then? I mean, how long, how long have you been doing this research? And can you kind of trace the early seed of that? 
you know, that's that question I ask when I interview people. Yeah. <laughs> the shoe's on the other foot <laughs> It's now, a good it? narrative inquiry question. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, I can tell you the long story about my childhood and my grandmother and those kinds of things. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say. <laughs> Go for it if you want. <laughs> um, my grandmother actually is from Sussex. Um, oh, okay. She was born in Eastbourne. Oh. And um, she was a headmistress of all things. Uh, came to Canada after World War One. We were terrified of her. Um, she ran a home for wayward boys wow. in Edmonton. And um, so my mother grew up with all these boys, you know, that were in trouble in some way or another. So she um, grew up to be um, an English teacher in vulnerable communities. She right. only wanted to work um, with kids from vulnerable communities, especially boys, actually. And um, all of my sisters and I became um, educators in one way or another, and feminist educators, and um, have always chosen um, social justice, um, you know, kinds of contexts mm -hmm. or issues. And I, I think that really comes from growing up with the kind of conversation around the dinner table and the way that my parents and my grandparents lived their lives mm. and thought were important. So <clears throat> when I decided to become an academic, um, I... I was most interested in um, in looking at um, things like equity and diversity and inclusion, um, particularly from the point of view of gender, mm -hmm. um, but more recently in an intersectional way, like multiple oppressions. Okay. So, you know, I, I talked to somebody on one of my research trips that was um, an older woman um, she had um, some um, perceptual challenges. Um, she had been a single mother. Um, she um, came from an Asian community. Um, you know, so these are sorts of things that pile on to people. So it's not just kind of one thing that they might need to deal with in mm. a particular context, but lots of interacting um, kinds of things. And, um, you know, so how, um, you know, how how do we understand that kind of experience and and you know how do we um, how do we help build capacity? Okay, and your work today has been trying to to build that experience or knowledge of that experience, I suppose. Um, yes, although actually that's not my own discipline. Okay, <laughs> my own discipline is instructional design. Okay, um, which is a very American um, kind of discipline mm -hmm. and doesn't really care much about the idea is to create optimal blueprints for learning that the teachers can't fuss with and learners can't fuss with. Right. It's a cynical way of talking right. about it. <laughs> so you're trying to subvert that but in a way. Yes, yeah. yes, that's a good word. Okay. Yeah, I like to subvert. There you go. Yep. Okay. So you can trace it all the way back to your grandmother, basically, then, your your interest, the research interest now. Yeah, I, I, I would say if I sort of take a narrative look backwards. Okay. You know, that what they say is you live your life forward, but only understand it backwards. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Excellent. So um, you also say you were, you were taking, I read somewhere you were taking an institutional ethnography approach yes. to your research. Yes. Could you please shed some light on what that entails as well? Well, I'm not, um, my research partner, David Peacock at the University of Alberta is actually that um, expert. Um, so an institutional ethnography um, takes a look at um, sociocultural contexts within an institution, how they're shaped um, by the people that work in that institution, for instance, in the political climate and so on, and, and um, what the response of the institution is then okay. um, to a particular community. So in our case, I'd be looking, I'm looking at um, 
how the University of Brighton, for instance, supports engaged scholarship. Um, are faculty rewarded for that, or are they punished for that? Mm. Um, do they find it easy to do the work, or um, do their colleagues think they're not doing real research? Right. You know, are students involved, and what are their learning outcomes? And then, you know, how does that put pressure on the institution to try to... Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of a two-way thing. So do you think that engaged scholarship can sometimes be seen as like an extra add-on yes. on top of the academic work in uh, that way? In fact, and almost always is. Right, okay. Um, you know, certainly, um, certainly, if you look at the literature and you know the the work that I've done so far, very often um, it's considered service, which is not as valuable to the institution as research or teaching. Mm. So, you know, when it's sort of categorized as just service, there's no sense of scholarship to it, mm. and so faculty quite fairly ask, "Well, why should I do it then if it's not going to be?" Right. Right. If it's not going to be acknowledged. So part of this, the challenge then of um, the institutional support is changing those processes and structures okay. that do support this kind of research as really valuable research. And do you see that changing in institutions you've been to then yet? Or is that still a work in progress, i.e. that kind of work being more rewarded? I think that will always be a work in progress because that's not how universities are um, really set up, mm. uh, first of all. And especially when you've got, you know, all of these international league tables, like the top 100 universities in kind of thing, yeah. Times Higher Education Supplement and uh, the Shanghai rankings and so on, you know that as, you know, as soon as those rankings are out every year, I mean, university presidents and the PR people are like, where are we? Yeah. Where are we on this? So yeah. it's, you know, it's all about that. And that really privileges a certain kind of research. Okay. Right. But dollars flow from it, right, mm. in terms of grants and, and those kinds of things. And so the research engine is really driving um, universities a lot, mm. that, that and uh, internationalization. Engaged scholarship um, usually takes longer. Mm. Um, it takes long to build relationships with the community. Um, you know, sometimes the fund, the funding agencies want to give you, they, they give you warning of three months to put together the proposal. Mm. So what do you, how are you going to build a relationship in three months? Um, they want it done in three years, but usually engaged research takes longer than that because mm. we're talking about social impact. Um, very often communities are not allowed to hold the funds. Yeah. You know, so they're always asking the university, for, you know, so, I mean, those kinds of structures really don't help. So you, you don't think those kind of re existing research frameworks really take into account community work or, or you know, when you say like the REF here, for example, yeah. does that not do enough to take into account? Well, I don't know it very well, okay. um, but from what I've heard, probably it doesn't. Right. Um, you know, because the coin of the realm really are um, impact factors and journals and so on, which are, mm. you know what, on average, three people read a paper. <laughs> right. Right. Why, and the community won't read a paper yeah, in a yeah, journal yeah. and then say, oh, what am I supposed to get from that so that I can apply it to this real-world problem in my community? Mm. It has to be a different kind of research, different kind of relationship, different kind of research um, products, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, a different understanding of um, expertise or a widening of acceptance that it, that expertise, you know, is not just located in the university but it's mm. located in communities yes right? yeah yeah so um that would be a it's a very big transformation for um higher education to embrace that mm. so what you see are pockets 
My faculty, for instance, at the University of Alberta is a pocket that recruits and works hard to retain engaged scholars. And, um, you know, all of our reward systems um, are focused on engagement. Um, so I don't care how many papers you publish, but I want you to tell me about impact in the community that you're working with. Right. Okay. I guess we're talking about perceptions of universities from the community as well, aren't we? Yes, being, we are. Being seen not so much as the kind of ivory tower or something, or being seen as something inaccessible, you know, something that can be taken out of the community. It, exactly. That's um, owned by the community, yeah. really, right? Yeah. So, okay. you know, owned might not be the right word, but it's a partnership. It's a reciprocal partnership. We live in communities, right? The universities are placed in communities, hmm. and everybody in the university belongs to community, you know, more than one community. Yeah. So... I don't know why we got into this, you know, 200-year-old habit of shutting the door mm. <laughs> on communities. So talking specifically about the work that you've done here this week then, um, it might be too early for you to assess your kind of takeaways as such, but from all the people you've, you've spoken to, are there any kind of um, messages coming out that you would that you can say now or do you need more time to reflect? Well, you know, I have a, f a few thoughts, but I wouldn't want to say it sort of it was the outcome because I need to go away, listen again to the conversations and mm. um, really reflect on them. Um, one of my questions I had, I have, for example, myself is, um, is engaged scholarship gendered? Okay. Um, and if you sort of look at the literature, you see that um, a lot of engagement scholarship is taken up by women in the academy. Mm. Where do you find women usually in the academy? Although, you know, this is very sad. Um, okay, I'm getting myself into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're not making huge inroads in STEM, right? Right. Yeah. You know, they tend to be in the social sciences, um, in humanities. Um, you know, so that women tend to do a lot of the emotional work in, mm. in the academy. So, you know, they... And the research backs me up, so there, a lot of the work is done by female academics who might have a relational practice Okay. in any event. Um, so that's one of the questions that I'm asking. Okay. You know? So you're specifically putting that to certain people at the university and asking them to reflect yes. on that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the scholars themselves, for example. Yeah. Um, I really want to know about their childhoods and their backgrounds. How did they grow up? What, you know, what was important in their household? Okay. Um, what did they think the purpose of research is, mm -hmm. you know, socially speaking? Um, why, why is that, why is that focus on early, early years then in childhood? Why are you keen to reflect on that? Well, um, because we develop, you know, our values framework um, pretty early on, mm. right? I mean, some research says by six. Yeah. You know, it's in place. And there's not going to be much change in it after that. So parents are very important. Early schooling is very important, mm -hmm. right? Siblings are very important. Here's one thing I found in the American um, phase in the site, which is, which is ongoing, is um, many of the scholars um, that have wanted to talk to me um, have come from quite religious backgrounds. You know, so their dad was a Baptist minister. Mm. Um, and so they kind of grew up with this sense of um, um, obligation, right, to kind of give back to the community. And so that's that leads to the kind of discipline they're interested in, the way they actually want to live in that discipline, mm. you know, the way that they want to uh, work with students and so on. So those, you know, I'm looking for kind of profiles of that. Like, is there a profile? But you know what I'm really interested in? What's the... Um, I'm sure there's not a national um, flavor of it. I mean, that because, every, you know, there's so many regional and social cultural differences and so on. But 
um, my American colleagues will be mad at me, but I would say that I, a phrase I hear a lot in the States is civic democracy. Right. You never hear that phrase in Canada. Right. Why right? is that, do you think? Well, it's just not the language yeah. that we use. Um, we tend to talk about, um, especially right now, you know, we talk about um, equity and diversion and inclusion and, mm-hmm. you know, social justice, right, and social impact. Someone has said to me they think the Australian kind of take on this is social impact. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that engagement in certain um, areas in the UK tends to be seen as um, engagement with industry, university right. industry engagement. Okay. And that's kind of a neoliberal sort yeah. of, right? So I'm really, really interested. Um, in what we think engagement yeah, is here, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, in Canada, for example, we're constitutionally bilingual, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so we have um, Francophone and Anglophone, mm. um, and many more languages and cultures, of course, but but not legally, not mm. officially in the Constitution. So that, that's not true in the States. Um, you know, the um, Indigenous um, issues are like framing almost every conversation in Canada right now. Not so in the States, mm. not so in England, right? But you find that in New Zealand and Australia. So... So you're interested in teasing out those discrepancies yes. almost between... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or characteristics, maybe, not okay. discrepancies. And so then how does that sort of inform how people want to work with communities and what they think, what communities think are important? What are the important social challenges, right? Yes. Okay. And I know one, obviously, connection that we have at the university is with um, the Bevy pub. Yes. Isn't it? Which you're yes. particularly interested in. I think you're going yes. to visit uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, fact. yes. Yeah. Why, yeah. why are you particularly interested in that, in that scheme? Oh, I, well, I just love that um, idea, you mm. know, of, of um, social innovation and social entrepreneurship. And um, so, so I try to go every time I come to Brighton. I, you know, I try to go to Brains at the Bevy. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I missed it this time. I was very disappointed. But I know there's much more than Brains at the Bevy that goes, goes on there. But, you know, just the idea of like a community working together, you know, to pull together a coalition you know i guess that said no here you know what do we want to have happen as a community and then um you know how can we sort of adapt structures that we already have and um you know just the idea that community decides who they want to have talk and Mm. it's that they pick the issues themselves really i didn't know that that really impact the community and um you know, the the idea of nights where, um, you know, the community members come together and cook and learn about each other's, you know, ethnic favorite, you know, dishes and so on. The children are involved with that. Mm. The work that goes on with seniors, right, mm-hmm. um, in that. I mean, it's just such an amazing model of social enterprise. And um, last year I brought one of my colleagues from the Edmonton Community Foundation, um which is a model in Canada, sort of big cities have these community foundations. Um, and they um, they have endowments from philanthropists and so on. And so the, the money um, is competitive. You apply for, you know, money to do these kinds of things. So anyways, I, I brought the director of the one in Edmonton last year to um, introduce to David Wolf mm-hmm. in Cup and also to meet um, the folks at the Bevy. And, and we went home, he said, we could do that. We could buy... Um, you know, a bar in a really, in a distressed neighborhood, mm. you know, we could do these kinds of things. And, um, 
you know, the the, um, the revenue that's generated in those is for the community, mm. right? It's not for the bar owner. No, of course. Which in this case is the community. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I'm just. I love that. <laughs> Have there been any plans underfoot then to develop your own kind of initiative like that? Well, he was very excited about that. Okay. Um, of course, ran into regulatory problems and um, what we call NIMBY. You know, not in my backyard. The, not <laughs> right. in my backyard, folks. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, the homeless can go somewhere else. Yeah. We care about them. We just don't want to see them or have them right, okay. in our neighborhood. And presumably that's one of the big obstacles to this kind of community I think work. Y- the NIMBY, NIMBY, it really is, yeah. Mm. And affordable housing and, yeah. you know, any of those kinds of things. Does it kind of frustrate you then when you talk about all this community work and something like Brains at the Bevy, which is direct engagement with community? Yes. It seems like when you... If you adopt that approach, then it's quite hard not to think of, say, an academic conference as being a bit of an echo chamber, I suppose. Does that, is there a place for both, I guess, is what I'm saying? Or, is, or does that kind of frustrate you a little bit, that internal approach, insular approach, I yeah. suppose? Well, let the record show I'm nodding. Yes, yeah. <laughs> as you speak. So um, they have a place, right? Um, you know, because you need to know what's going on in your field. Mm. Um, and conferences are kind of immediate. I mean, if you wait until something's published, it could already be two or three years along just because of the process of submitting things and review and that kind of thing. So they're pretty immediate. So they're pretty useful that way. Mm. Um, they don't always tend to be echo chambers, although, um, no, so contra- yeah, maybe, maybe echo chambers wasn't the right word, but, um, well, yeah. c- controversial ideas, um, You'd think, you know, that academic sort of gatherings would be the place where everybody would love controversial ideas and get to talk about them. But in fact, people have turf to protect, Mm. right? And this was really obvious a few years ago um, when questions began to be raised about the land bridge between Asia and North America, Mm -hmm. you know, and whether, you know, sort of the origin of, um, you know, humans in, in North America and so on. And that research has not necessarily... It hasn't been discredited, but there have been questions about it. Mm. Well, then how do you explain finding this in Latin America? And how do you you know, explain this? Yeah. So th- that was a raging controversy in, in anthropology mm. for a few years that was really private. You know, it was, I imagine the same thing happened when um, they decided that Pluto wasn't a planet yeah. anymore, right? Look at all these people yeah. that have staked their careers you know, on that kind of research and suddenly, what? Hmm. It's not a planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's discredited instantly, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of caution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, I wondered if you could think about your time here. You said you've been here, what, six times? Yeah. This is the sixth six time? Yeah. Uh, have you had much of it? You've said you've visited the bevy and, and yep. other schemes like that maybe. Have you had much chance to explore the city outside of your work? Has there been any, uh, oh, yeah. any particular highlights or favorite spots that you enjoy in Brighton? Well, I make my annual pilgrimage to the pavilion, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. So, um, because I have a British background. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, so I'm, I'm very, very, very taken um, with those kinds of things. And I do a lot of Christmas shopping at the museum store. Okay. And I, I do love the museum um, there as well. Um you know, I drop quite a bit of money in the lanes. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Propping up the economy there. Yep, yeah. yep. Fabulous food, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I've been to the bevy. Um, this is the first time, this trip is the first time I've actually taken trains. Okay. Which yeah. is kind of a novel experience for a Western Canadian person. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so today I took a taxi because it was raining so hard and I didn't want to ruin my shoes, which I bought at Irregular Choices. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> which I buy every year. Right. Yeah. You know, like clockwork. Um, <laughs> and I thought, and it, you know, it was such a short ride for, from where I was staying. I stay in bed and breakfasts mm -hmm. all the time. I love Camp Town, but I'm not staying there this time. And um, I thought, well, wait a minute. It's like, it's in the city. Like, this campus is in the city. Mm. And when I took the train, I got this impression that it was way out in the country just because of the, yeah. the rain, all yeah, the greenery yeah. and that kind of thing. So that's been a new experience for me. Okay. We've been to um, the marina. We've been to, um, I can't remember. Um, are there cliffs? No, not cliffs. Yeah, um, further down the coast. Yes. More towards Eastbourne, in fact. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have you managed to go to Eastbourne then and retrace yes. the family yes. history? Yeah, yes, okay. I yeah. did. Yeah. So um, before I came, um, this was a few years ago, I joined Ancestry.co.uk okay. and, uh, you know, found my grandmother's birth records. And so my husband and I took a bus. These were a bus down the coast mm. um, and spent an afternoon trying to find the house where she was born. And it turned out to be an apartment building, sadly. Yeah. Um, but... We had this most wonderful experience. So there was um, a, a man just across the street, and he was working in his garden. And uh, I said to him, you know, excuse me, did this used to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I sort of showed him the word. And he said, oh, I think I have something for you. So he tears into his house, calling to his wife to make us tea in the garden. <laughs> so we went over and had tea with them, and they just bought this house. And... Um, the eight, the real estate agent gave them a book that I guess the community had put together of all the land titles going back to something like 1800, mm. you know, in that area, mm -hmm. um, in Eastburn. And sure enough, there's my grand, my great grandfather's um, signature. Yeah. Right. And census records. Wow. Yeah. So I, I can't tell you how thrilled I was. And, um, you know how lovely that was mm. to make that effort for us. Yes, indeed. Right? Yeah. And to serve us tea. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So now I want to bring back my daughter and my granddaughters so they can, you know, see where their, you know, where their great grandmother, I guess, and great great grandmother. Yeah. Where it all started for them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously, um, Alberta, I've done a, a kind of cursory Google search. I mean, it looks yeah. beautiful, the landscape. It is. Uh, yeah. What would you encourage, if we happen to find ourselves in, in Alberta, what would you encourage us to do? Well, of course, the typical trip for everybody is the Rockies. Of course, right? yeah. Um, and um, to to uh, drive the Jasper Banff um, Parkway, kind of a circle. Okay. Um, Alberta um, has many beautiful lakes. Um, it's, it's really um, kind of a um, an outdoor person's mm. um, haven, right? Um, so, you know, lots of nature-related activities like um, whitewater rapids and and those kinds of things. Um, I wasn't born near the mountains. I was born in the prairies, and I'm kind of a prairie girl. Okay. So, um, you know, Alberta summers are just gorgeous, right? There's they're endless, endless blue sky, mm. um, you know, and little white scudding clouds and, you know, moderate to pretty warm temperatures but it's a dry heat we like to say okay just like to say it's a dry cold yeah um lots and lots of festivals um because they're kind of crammed into those months right yeah, of yeah. june july and august because after that you never know it might snow yeah true yeah. <laughs> and snow probably only left in may <laughs> <laughs> so lots of festivals throughout the province um lots and lots of farmers markets and okay. you know those kinds of things um calgary and edmonton are both quite sophisticated 
you know, urban areas. Um, if you go in the summer, you can go to the Calgary Stampede, if that's the kind of thing that you like. What's the Calgary Stampede? What's, Sounds intriguing. What's the oh, Calgary it's, Stampede? It's kind of a big rodeo. Oh, right, In okay. which lots of horses die every year, mm. so I've... You know, I boycott right. the stamp. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Calgary Stampede. Yeah. Of course, everybody wants to see the Mounties. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So, you know, there are lots of kind of events where Mounties kind of, you know, dress up and do their horse thing. Right. Um, what's a, uh, what are the characteristics of a prairie girl then? You said you're a prairie girl. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's, how would you define that? Um, well, I like wide open space. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, um, we're kind of... Um, I don't know if I'd say hardy, but you know the weather. Weather's always a big topic. Yeah. Um, because it's extreme, right? But there's a pride to being to living and thriving. Yes. Right. In mm-hmm. those kinds of extremes, so we're not. We don't. Okay, we whine. I, have, I admit we whine, but in really we don't fuss about it. We just get on with it, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't hide inside for like six months of the year. You have to get dressed, mm-hmm. go outside, go to work. You know, go skiing, take the kids to, you know, school, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, you have cyclists in minus 40, you know, cycling yeah. <laughs> to work. Wow. Um, you made so, about a bit, bit of light drizzle here. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, don't, I think that's dangerous myself. Um, but, you know, you, so there's that kind of, of sense. There's a sense um, taken um, way over the top, I think, of... Um, you know, independence, um, government don't fuss with me, kind of mm-hmm. a cowboy kind of sense around in southern Alberta, certainly in Calgary. Um, so um, that part of the province is highly conservative. Okay. Um, so what else? I think that's a pretty thorough examination of the psyche there. <laughs> <laughs> We're very um, community-minded. And okay. again, I think, you know, when you sort of think, what's, what's sort of Canadian? Um Weather really is a big definer, right? So mm. there are lots of disasters, right? Like blizzards and forest fires mm. and, and those kinds of things. And you really see communities um, pulling together. Mm-hmm. But that because in the early days, you wouldn't survive, right? Mm. You're in kind of a peat hut on the prairie. You know, if your neighbors 10 miles away didn't bring their horse over to see if you were alive. Yeah. You know, you were in big trouble. So we have the highest rate of volunteerism in the world. Oh, really? Okay. And my province, Alberta, has the highest rate in Canada. Right, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of that. Ah. So does that filter through to the to the university? And I was going to ask about what you think mm-hmm. the big strengths of the University of, of Alberta is. Maybe that's one of them. But yeah, what would you say the big strengths are? Of El- uh, University of Alberta? Mm. <clears throat> um, it's, a, um, it's the first university in Alberta that was established in Alberta. About 40,000 students or so. Right. That's full-time students. That doesn't count you know, part-time and um, adults and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a um, it's a comprehensive research university. Um, so it's one of the top um, three to five in Canada, depends on the year. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, with lots of, of different professional schools and so on. So that's kind of the profile of it. It was established um, in 1908 by a man named Henry Marshall Torrey. And he was a Methodist. And um, so... Again, that's got kind of faith-based thing, right? Mm. So um, his philosophy was that education should be accessible to all, that okay. it was a human right, and it was the university's responsibility, obligation, duty um, to make ed- learning accessible. And um, so you know, that's what he said, and we still quote him today, that um, you know, universities are for the public good, 
Right. So um, that has that's really the um, personality of the University of Alberta. It was, mm. it, you know, it was established that way. It was the university of the community, of the people. Um, Seems kind of coincidental that obviously your work fits into that so well, or do you think it's actually influenced by that philosophy? Probably both, right? Both, yeah. Yeah, okay. probably both. Um, you know, I've been to, uh, I've been in the SUNY system in the States, for example, a state university in New York. Mm. Um, you know, I've been in um, northern Manitoba. Mm-hmm. That was quite the, <laughs> quite the challenge. Yeah. At a community college, you know, um, but the University of Alberta just, you know, feels, it feels like the right fit um, if you want to work on the in the name of the public good mm. right is there anything else you'd um you'd like to add about your time here about anything else i think um i think that's probably probably about it but um is there anything else you'd um, like to add? just that i love you know the university of brighton i love being in brighton um i just you know it's just the whole way that the university sort of sees itself you know in the region um just feels like just feels that this work okay you know is really really significant mm. um to senior administration it's really significant to the city itself yeah like there seems to be that really kind of deep connection okay. um and partnership and um yes yeah, so that I, you know so i want to tell that story <laughs> excellent yeah that's good to hear yeah thanks very much katie well thank you cheers Many thanks to Katie for her time. You can find all of our University of Brighton podcasts by searching University of Brighton on Spotify, Apple and many other podcast apps. See you next time.